Tonight on The Readout. Trump incited the insurrection, uh, and there is no loophole in the Constitution. To hold that there is a loophole for the president in the Constitution would basically say Donald Trump is above the law when he engages in rebellion and insurrection. I think that's wrong. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold on Trump's disqualification from her state's ballot. And now a compromised Supreme Court shaped by Trump will decide his fate on that and his claim of presidential immunity in the election interference case. And a predictable response from Trump's MAGA allies, let the people decide, they say, after all of them tried to overturn the will of the voters last time. Plus, Trump's obsession with pure blood, which is now part of his increasingly fascist stump speech. But we begin tonight with the consequences of insurrection. Because lately, it doesn't seem like there have been many for politicians who participated in them. But there absolutely have been some. Let's start with Coy Griffin, a person you probably don't know. Griffin was the co-founder of Cowboys for Trump and was elected as a commissioner of Otero County, New Mexico. Prior to his election, Griffin was an election-denying, false lie-spreading MAGA Republican. He was so committed to the lie that he was convicted in federal court last year of a misdemeanor for entering the U.S. Capitol grounds on January 6, 2021, without going inside. Griffin was sentenced to 14 days in jail and given credit for time served. Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a.k.a. CREW, sued to remove him from office on behalf of New Mexico residents on the grounds that his participation in the January 6th insurrection made him ineligible to hold office under Section 3 of the post-Civil War 14th Amendment to the Constitution. A judge agreed, booting him from his position as commissioner and barring him from holding any public office. Coy Griffin is the only successful case to be brought under Section 3 since 1869. The other modern cases that have been filed but failed were against Marjorie Taylor Greene and ousted North Carolina Republican Congressman Madison Cawthorn. All of that is to say that there has been precedent for these kinds of cases, just not for a president of the United States. And we will find out very soon if the U.S. Supreme Court agrees with the Colorado Supreme Court that Donald Trump is ineligible for office, just like Coy Griffin, because he, too, engaged in insurrection by inciting the riot on January 6th that Griffin and more than a thousand others got swept up in, and that he did so as a sworn officer of the United States. The Colorado court's decision was clear and unambiguous that Trump incited an insurrection, a point President Biden made yesterday. Is Trump an insurrectionist, sir? Well, I think it's you're self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, or let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. And uh, he seems to be doubling down on about everything. It will be up to the U.S. Supreme Court to decide, however, which means that Trump's political future rests on John Roberts's court with its six to three conservative supermajority, three of them nominated by Trump and five of whom were picked, promoted and assisted by conservative judicial Svengali Leonard Leo. It is this court a court whose members have lied to the Senate and the American public by claiming to respect precedent, stare decisis, which they then dismissed 
and invented arbitrary legal standards to suit their political ideology. That court will now get to determine if Article 3 of the 14th Amendment is explicitly clear when it says no person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, who having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution and the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. The debate will most likely center on whether those who drafted the 14th Amendment believed the president and vice president were covered by that language. So these justices just might like to hear what politicians said in response to the lack of specificity on the president and vice president. Here's Representative John Bingham's account of what happened when they brought that up. Quote, let me call the senator's attention to the words or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. Practically speaking, what the authors of Section 3 were saying is that the language was clear and Congress didn't intend for this section to spare the president and the vice president. Now, to be fair, we can't say what the Supreme Court will do. But what I can tell you is that they are deeply unpopular and facing the most profound legitimacy crisis in modern history. And it probably has to do with all the lavish gifts and trips and their fervor for implementing right-wing Republican dogma. And then there was Justice Clarence Thomas, a man who has told clerks that he wants to make liberals' lives miserable. His wife, Virginia Thomas, is an ardent conservative activist who colluded extensively with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about overturning Joe Biden's victory over Trump. Now, in case you forgot, Mrs. Thomas sent Meadows 29 text messages in which she militantly and relentlessly demanded that the election results be invalidated because it was a, quote, obvious fraud. She demanded that Meadows release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down. Ginny's husband will be one of the justices weighing Trump's political future. Clarence Thomas has already participated in two cases related to the 2020 election and its aftermath, despite his wife's direct involvement in the so-called Stop the Steal efforts. One of those cases had to do with Trump's White House records being turned over to the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Only one justice disagreed, Clarence Thomas. The Colorado case isn't the only one that they will have to deal with. The court is also currently entertaining the possibility of taking on Trump's claim that he has absolute presidential immunity and cannot be prosecuted for committing crimes. You know, crimes like insurrection. Late this afternoon, his lawyers told the Supreme Court that they shouldn't take up the case just yet, but rather they should wait until the appeals court rules first. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who was a member of the House January 6th Select Committee. I'm going to skip for a moment, uh, Congressman Raskin, because I, I have limited time with you and I want to use it all up. Um, uh, the part about Donald Trump trying to once again delay the Supreme Court seeing hearing a very important case because he wants to slow it down by letting the uh, a sort of interregnum court get it first. But I want to go right to the question of whether or not the framers intended the, 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 the uh, president to be covered by Section 3. I want to show you a picture. This is Donald Trump taking the oath of office and you, sir, also taking the oath of office. Here is what the president read. I think that picture is going to come up in a second. When he took his oath of office, Donald Trump recited the following. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. 
Here's what you and other members of Congress said. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office of which I am about to enter. So help me God. Benny Thompson, who led the January 6th committee, pointed out that that language was adjusted after the Civil War to account for the fact that there had been insurrectionists in their midst. In your mind, in your view, as a constitutional scholar and a congressman, did you and Donald Trump both become officers of the United States? Well, of course. And the Colorado Supreme Court was very clear that both of these oaths of office are oaths to support the Constitution of the United States. And that's the only commonsensical interpretation. And, um, you know, I believe that the Colorado court did a terrific job of refuting this bizarre claim that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to every officer in America except for the most important officer in America, the president of the United States. And they demonstrate that um, the word office or officer is applied to the president or the presidency 25 different times in the Constitution. So I don't think that uh, that poses any serious obstacle to the finding that uh, Donald Trump's conduct um, was covered by Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, and that it, it, it uh, the con- that the provision itself applies to him as the President of the United States. It w- is it your assumption? We can't get into the heads, although Samuel Alito thinks he can. You can't get into the heads of the people who wrote parts of the Constitution. But is it, it would it would it be a pragmatic and sort of obvious sort of take to say that they didn't specifically name the president because the president, you know, had been assassinated by the insurrectionists, and I guess they didn't have the uh, sort of creativity to imagine that a president would be the one to be the insurrectionist. Well, it obviously didn't leap to mind for them (laughs) with Abraham Lincoln as the central figure in rejecting and resisting the insurrection and the secession against the union. They, they had in mind the paradigm case of the president defending the union against all of the secessionists and insurrectionists. In any event, as the Colorado court points out, the language is comprehensive and exhaustive, and the president has always been treated both as an officer of the Constitution and an officer under the United States. I don't think that this matter needs to detain us uh, much longer. I mean, I think that those people who want to defend Trump against the very clear textual meaning of the Constitution and against the very clear original purposes of it are going to have to gravitate around some other idea. More likely, they will say that Congress needs to act, that this is a so-called non-justiciable political question that belongs in the legislative branch. But I just don't think that dog is going to hunt about how the president is not covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. You know, if you go back and look at the legislative history, it's very interesting because the 
radical Republicans who were the ones who added this to the Constitution started off with saying anybody who participated in the Confederacy in insurrection should be disenfranchised forever. And then when it got over to the Senate, they narrowed it down. They said that's far too broad. It shouldn't be anybody who participated in the insurrection. It's just people who swore an oath before and violated the oath. And it shouldn't be disenfranchisement. It shouldn't be about voting. It should be about holding office again. But you can see how Donald Trump's case is right in the bullseye prohibition of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. He is in the worst case scenario of someone who swore an oath to the Constitution, was supposed to uphold it, betrayed the oath, um, and proved himself essentially untrustworthy and therefore unfitting for office. And that's why this is called the disqualification clause. And this is a very straightforward interpretation of it. I think that when this case goes up to the Supreme Court, it is going to just be a uh, a master exam on whether or not the textualists and the originalists mm-hmm. really believe in their own rhetoric, because the text is perfectly clear, and the original purposes of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment are overwhelmingly obvious here. Yeah, they can, uh, as Michael Beschloss so brilliantly said, they can either be the court that found that Nixon was not above the law or the court that decided the 2000 election. It's truly up to them. Uh, but uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, it's always a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's bring in Noah Bookbinder, president of CREW, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, and Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for the nation. Thank you all for being here. I do want to start with you. Uh, and congratulations on a very important legal victory. Um, it is not the first, however, for your organization. We did mention uh, the founder of Cowboys for Trump, who was also removed from office under these measures. Um, and we know that, f- that prior to the, I mean, after the Civil War, 14 United States senators, I have a list right in front of me, were expelled from the United States Senate based on this. Can you anticipate, now that there have been two courts that found that Donald Trump did commit insurrection, Colorado Supreme Court and the district court, can you envision how the Supreme Court could wriggle out of removing him from the ballot? Well, look, I I think it's really important that these two courts found that, and not just uh, in a casual way. They found it after uh, days of witness testimony, thousands of pages of of documents, hours of video testimony, uh, rigorous argument from from all sides. So this was a a real process. It was uh, it was consideration of a great deal of evidence, um, and you know that was the basis for I think these in many ways kind of irrefutable findings that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and that this was an insurrection. Yeah. Uh, I think Congressman Raskin is right that that uh, the Supreme Court is, pr- if it goes to the Supreme Court, we'll, we'll see if, if Donald Trump appeals as he says he's going to. We'll mm-hmm. see if the Supreme Court takes it. Um, but they're more likely to uh, kind of move around the edges and think about these questions of who's empowered to make these decisions um, than to uh, disturb those actual, I think, real really hard and fast, um, well-supported findings about uh, Donald Trump engaging in insurrection. We don't think there's really a solid basis on those more procedural grounds either, um, but I I suspect that would be more likely where the argument would be. And, you know, and Elliot, I I wanted to have you on tonight, too, because, you know, I view the Supreme Court conservatives as politicians um, who are seeking conservative Republican outcomes, not so much 
textual, you know, adherence to the Constitution. They just find what they want to find in there. So why don't you use your lurid imagination and tell us what might they be able to come up with to try to wriggle out of two court findings that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and though ipso facto disqualified? Yeah. So my issue here is that I, I think that you're, you're framing it as will the Supreme Court agree with Colorado? I think the real bigger question is, will the Supreme Court agree with themselves? Will the Supreme Court apply their own conservative ideology? You and Jamie Raskin and Noah have just brilliantly explained how by a strict textualist or originalist understanding, this is a slam dunk. I would like to bring up by a strict states' rights understanding, which is what the conservatives seem to always like to go on about when it comes to denying black people the right to vote and gerrymandering away uh, black voting power. They always want to go on about states' rights. Well, here, Colorado is executing its states' rights to decide who should be on their own ballot. And the Mm -hmm. Colorado Supreme Court decision literally quotes Neil Gorsuch from when he was a a judge on the Tenth Circuit. Um, This is a case that Noah found on crew, so like big ups to them, Um, (laughs) where Neil Gorsuch says that, of course, Colorado has the right to exclude people from the ballot who do not meet the qualifications for president. So who was that guy? Because that's kind of important. The guy is named Abdul Karim Hassan. He was a naturalized citizen. But the Constitution says that only natural-born citizens are eligible to run for president. And Neil Gorsuch took a strict, literalist reading of that, decided that Hassan was not qualified to be president, and decided that, therefore, Colorado could exclude him from the ballot. This is the same case. This is exactly the same case that Trump is now facing. And so the real question is not, will the Supreme Court follow the law? But the question is, will the Supreme Court follow their own ideology and logic. Yeah. Your question, and, 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 can they, and, and that's really where the ballgame is. Indeed. And, and, or will they just try to get what they want? Um, I want to cite another thing. This is John Roberts in 2010, um, Noah. And this was a case called Free Enterprise Fund versus Public Company Accounting Oversight. And this was, uh, the citation here is, the people do not vote for the officers of the United States. The case was rather regarding whether the president has the authority to fire officers of the United States. Like, could Donald Trump, you know, fire the attorney general and that sort of thing. And they have, in this ruling, John Roberts seemed to say that the president is an officer of the United States. So if he and, to Ellie's point, Neil Gorsuch have seemed to find in the past that the president is an officer, that doesn't seem like a door they can go back through. So is there some other way? Because I just assume they're going to do what they want. I partly think politically they want Trump gone, but I can't think of any other way to get out of it. Well, look, I, I think that you're right that the—, the um Law seems very clear on this officer of the United States point. In fact, Donald Trump himself, in um, one of his other cases in the past year, argued that the president is an officer of the United States. So, (laughs) you know, they're they're sort of trying to have it all different ways. Um, I I guess as I look at the Supreme Court, uh, I— want to think that, you know, this is a Supreme Court that has actually um, taken a pretty tough line on abuses of power by Donald Trump, has affirmed congressional oversight of Donald Trump. Uh, it's also a Supreme Court that, you know, as you talked about, at least in some cases, um, has has taken a textualist and originalist approach. I think that's an approach that in this case really uh, favors uh, holding Donald Trump accountable under yeah. this provision that, that seemed to be put in place for exactly this uh, this set of facts. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there are a lot of reasons to think that whatever you may think about this Supreme Court, uh, that 
they'll give us a fair hearing if it if it gets up there. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll see where they end up. We shall see. I'll just you know, note for some breaking It's not breaking news, but this is some news that the audience should have, that Judge Beryl Howell has ruled that Shane Moss and Ruby Freeman can immediately seek 148 million, their, their judgment, their $148 million judgment from Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Giuliani's failure to satisfy even more modest monetary awards entered earlier in this case provides good cause to believe he will seek to dissipate or conceal his assets during the 30-day period contemplated by the rule in question. Uh, we're going to talk more about that probably tomorrow. But um, for now, I have to thank Noah Bookbinder and Ellie Mistal. Thank you both for your time. And up next on The Readout, Republicans suddenly rediscover their love for democracy after Trump is struck from the ballot in Colorado with calls of let the people decide ringing from the rafters. Just make up your minds, people. The Readout continues after this. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being president of the United States by the voters of this country. If the United States of America is built on one principle, it's that we the people select the leaders of this country, select the president of the United States. We don't need to have judges making these decisions. We need voters to have to make these decisions. So I want to see this in the hands of the voters. In response to the Colorado Supreme Court decision kicking Trump off the 2024 ballot, Republicans are lashing out, with several arguing that the decision shouldn't be made by the courts. It should be made by the people. But wait a second. Isn't this the same party that just three years ago, when voters chose the other candidate, screamed that the election was rigged and stolen and used the courts to try to overturn the votes of the people? And when that didn't work, Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol in a violent insurrection, all because they didn't get their way. I guess leaving it to the people only matters when it is their people making the decisions. Joining me now, Tara Setmeyer, former Republican communications director and senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, and Mara Gay, New York Times editorial board member and MSNBC political analyst. Uh, Tara, my friend and sister, since when do they want to leave it to the people? Let me go back and give you an, uh, a, a, a non-exhaustive list. Donald Trump is a birther. He said, Don, he said that uh, Barack Obama shouldn't even be allowed to be on the ballot because he's like, I need to see his long-term birth certificate, right? They said that the 2020 election wasn't real. So therefore, um, they should just throw the elections out and have Congress decide who the president was. I could go on and on and on. Since when do they want the people to decide elections? Well, based on Trump's latest rhetoric, it's only white people that they care ah. about, what they vote and who they say. So they're OK. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, what this is about here is is they're, they're cafeteria constitutionalists. 
they pick and choose when they feel like they decide they, you know, when they want to support democracy or when they want to support the Constitution, when when it fits their needs and their political expediency. It's so transparent that it's almost laughable, but it's not. This is deadly serious stuff here. And the idea now that they're going to be sanctimonious and lecture about, oh, we have to respect the vote of the people and how dare the courts is just it. it, it the level of hypocrisy is just hard to quantify. But I think we need to continue to call it out. There is so much evidence of them taking both sides of this. They're so duplicitous that we have to continue to point it out and force these Republicans into a corner to say and decide, okay, so you're not okay with democracy when, you know, when, you, you, you know, Trump claims there was election fraud, but you're okay with democracy when, you know, the court is looking at the, the facts and says, yeah, the guy he engaged in insurrection and he's disqualified from the ballot in our legal opinion. We can't let them get away with being with the, with the doublespeak because that's what yeah. they do. They try to flood the zone with this doublespeak BS and confuse people. And then people go, oh, yeah, of course, let the voters decide. Right. Yeah, but what about all the what about all the other stuff that you guys did where you didn't give a damn what the voters thought? Exactly. I mean, they, Donald Trump wanted Ted Cruz thrown off the ballot. He said, throw him off the ballot. I mean, he literally went to court like 60 times to try to overturn the results mm -hmm. of the people's and vote. All right. <laughs> and laws. And he went to court to try to overturn the votes of the people. Let me play um, some re um, Republican reactions, some additional reactions to Colorado. Seeing what happened in Colorado tonight, Laura, it makes me think, except we believe in democracy in Texas, maybe we should take Joe Biden off the ballot in Texas for allowing 8 million people to cross the border since he's been president. I just think the Democrats wake up every morning, Emily, and they look at the calendar. The iPhone says January 6, 2021. The date never changes. And then they get an electric vehicle and go get an abortion. Yes, Jesus. Amara, I almost, yeah, I'm going to just let you respond. I mean, because the, the thing is, is that this is now just in the same playbook of now we're going to say retaliatory things. We'll just take Joe Biden off the ballot. It's so inconsistent and so incoherent, but somehow it works for their base. You know, the thing that's most dispiriting to me about the overall Republican reaction is that this should be for them a lifeline. You say that you don't like Trumpism, you'd prefer something else, but you just want, you know, fewer taxes. Here's your opportunity to show some patriotism and some courage, take that lifeline and coalesce around democracy. And instead, their cowardice runs so deep, in fact, that uh, they can't even do that. They can't even call out uh, the idea of having somebody who incited an insurrection on the ballot because they're so afraid of Donald Trump and his his voters. That is really disgraceful. And it really is concerning because there's been a lot of discussion about the need for Republicans to uh, really retake their party, uh, you know, moderate Republicans, anti-Trump Republicans. But when you see this unfold, you wonder if they have it in them. And you wonder what it will take to defeat Trumpism and who will be able to do it. And I just I also have to say that, you know, we talk a lot about freedom in this country. Freedom is wonderful, but freedom comes with responsibility. And so there are other guardrails as well. In addition to not inciting an insurrection against the government, you also have to be a certain age to run for president. You have to be born in the United States to run for president. So this isn't just some free for all where, again, as you said, you can pick and choose the rules. You know, we live in a society of many laws and any average citizen would be expected to follow all of them. But yet the president of the United States is not. 
It makes yeah. no sense. Well, I mean, and the thing is, Tara, they had a chance because it's true. We Behind the scenes, half of these people despise Donald Trump, want him gone, as Mara points out. And yet when they had the chance to impeach him, they were too scared to do that. When they've had the mm-hmm. chance to pick somebody other than him in the primary, they're too scared to do that. They don't want they want some other Dale's ex match in a force to come and take him away and take him up in a spaceship because they don't want to touch him. And now this is the chance for the courts to take care of this. And they're still screaming. Tom Tills is saying they want to defund Colorado. And any state that does that takes off the ballot. Uh, you know, it, it's this. You're right. And, and I tweeted this the other day. I'm like, we wouldn't even be here now if a handful more Republicans had the testicular fortitude to remove him in the Senate back in 2021 when he was impeached for trying to overturn a free and fair election, which was obvious to everyone that it was an attempted coup. But they refused <sighs> to do it. Every single lifeline, every exit ramp off the Trump highway, they have not taken it. Not only have they not taken it, they've gunned it to the floor <laughs> and kept going. Woohoo! You know, I mean, like, it's insanity. You look at this yeah. and go, what is wrong with these people? But it, power is very intoxicating. I've said this before. And I think that this, this power, this thirst for power and this, this desire for relevance has gotten so out of control that it is now an existential threat to the yeah. entire country. The Republican yeah. Party has has abdicated their responsibility to be the beacons of of, you know, constitutionality and freedom and democracy like the old Republicans used to be. And instead, they've become, an, a, you know, a pro illiberal populism, pro Nazi fetish um, authoritarian party that makes yeah. excuses for Donald Trump and disparages our Democratic guardrails. We cannot well, stay silent on this. That's what next well, year is going to be all about. Yeah, well, there's one thing I will give good news for the state of Colorado. Vivek Ramaswamy has threatened to take his name off the ballot uh, <laughs> if Donald Trump's isn't going to be on there. You're welcome, Colorado. These uh, ladies yeah. are staying with me, Tara and Mara. Please stay with me because uh, we need to talk about Trump's increasingly hateful, anti-immigrant and, frankly, Nazi-sounding rhetoric. And we'll do that when we come back. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It is language that is meant to divide us. Um, It is language that I think people have rightly found similar to the language of Hitler. And I think it's just critically important that we remind each other, including our children, that the true measure of the strength of a leader is based not on who they beat down, but who they lift up. Vice President Kamala Harris speaking to my colleague Lawrence O'Donnell about Donald Trump's anti-immigrant blood purity rhetoric in New Hampshire last weekend. But hours after she made those remarks, Trump doubled down on the Hitlery comments, this time in Iowa. 
And it's true. They're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They don't like it when I said that. And I never read Mein Kampf. They said, oh, Hitler said that in a much different way. You know, they're coming from all over the world, people all over the world. We have no idea. They could be healthy. They could be very unhealthy. They could bring in disease that's going to catch on in our country, but they do bring in crime. Mein Kampf, of course, is Adolf Hitler's fascist manifesto. And frankly, it doesn't matter if Trump didn't read it. Come on, has this man ever read anything? What matters is he is echoing Hitler's rhetoric, whether he's literally plagiarizing it or just channeling it naturally because that's who he is. And by the way, his late ex-wife, Ivana Trump, once said Trump kept a book of Hitler's speeches by his bedside. Want to tell us, Donald, whether you read those? Back with me, Tara Setmeyer of The Lincoln Project and Mara Gay, editorial board member for The New York Times. Mara, your thoughts on this, because he is at this point saying, well, Hitler said it, but in a different way and then saying it again. You know, I think that there's going to be so many opportunities to get pithy about the political consequences of this speech. But I just want to take a moment to call out how immoral and dangerous and hateful they are, that speech, that speech is, excuse me. And the reason is not just because it's fascist. And I think, unfortunately, too few Americans really understand what that really could mean. Uh, even in a democracy, but because it dehumanizes others. That is what makes it dangerous. It suggests that immigrants are not as human or as deserving of human rights and dignity as others. That is language that today he is using to apply to immigrants, but tomorrow could be used to apply to any other minority uh, in the country or elsewhere. That is what makes this language so dangerous. It's one of those moments where, you know, I I grew up actually with the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. I had Holocaust survivors come to my kindergarten classroom, roll up their sleeves and show the tattoos where that they received in concentration camps. And you kind of think to yourself, how after we lost six million Jews were killed in the 20th century because of a fascist movement? In this very country, in the United States, fascism was had a stranglehold on democracy across the South for Black Americans in the form of white supremacy. And yet, we're still sitting here unable to recognize fascism for the threat it is. And that really depresses me. And I, I just also have to say that it's clear that fascism maintains some deep appeal among a large number of people, or Donald Trump wouldn't be using it. I think we have to look that in the face, understand it. It's very uncomfortable. You, you know, all of us sit here and we would, that doesn't appeal to us, but it does appeal to some people. So we need to understand how to fight those horrible ideas with moral ones. And, and I don't think that's a fight that we should shy from. I totally agree. And the media has to call it. I think it's important to use the word fascism. And, you know, Tara, it also appeals to other Republicans. Tommy Tuberville said those comments about immigrants being specifically immigrants from Asia and Africa, making the country's blood impure, uh, which is literally what Hitler said. It is it is ruining the blood purity of white America is what he means. And, you know, it goes along with the immigrants making the country dirtier. You put it all together. This is what Trump believes, but it's also what other Republicans believe, too. 
Unfortunately, yes, Mara's right. I mean, we look at Iowa, the recent polling that came out of Iowa and the commentary when people are asked about his dictator remarks and things that he said, they're like, oh, my my mom was like a dictator. I don't have any problem with that. Good. You know, J.D. Vance went out there and tried to try to rationalize Trump's comments to say, no, no, no. He didn't mean po- the blood poisoning immigrants. No, no, no. He means that immigrants are poisoning the blood because of fentanyl trafficking. Like, stop this. This is absurd. But it's very scary because there are millions of people who are continuing to make excuses because they don't want to face the fact that they're okay with some of this stuff. They're all right. It's too hard to look inward. There's something to be said about that. And I've said this for a while, that as a country, we really need to reflect on that. I mean, my great-grandparents came from Germany in the 1920s to escape the Nazi Germany. They were German Jews. I didn't know this until my grandfather was in his 80s when he actually mentioned that, because the Nazis tried to recruit his 10-year-old brother in Germany. My great-grandparents came there. My father's side came from Guatemala to escape the revolution there. So, you know, are all are people like this that have these immigrant heritages, many of us in this country, millions, are poisoning the blood? Is my biracial existence poisoning the blood of this country? According to Trump, he? yes. Exactly. And according yes. to the Republican Party, apparently they're okay with that kind of yeah. rhetoric. That dehumanization yeah. leads to what we saw in El Paso, the mass shootings that, you know, in, in areas where you saw these manifestos where they're racist yeah. and um, raci- racially motivated. This yeah. is the type of stuff right here that yeah. I think as a country we will grapple with. But there are yeah. more of us than there are of them. And that's why this election next year is yeah. so, so, so important. Everyone Indeed. has to be involved. Apathy indeed. cannot re- re- rule the day at Yeah, all. indeed, indeed. Uh, Tara Setmeyer, Mara Gay, thank you both very much. Well said. Coming up, hunger, homelessness, and disease run rampant in Gaza as Israel continues its relentless assault, the latest on talks aimed at ending the violence when we come back. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza is becoming more dire by the day. An estimated 20,000 are dead, according to Hamas's government media office in Gaza, with the Israeli military saying it struck 300 targets over the past day. According to the U.N., more than 90 percent of the estimated 2 million Palestinians in Gaza are displaced and starving. Hostage negotiations were underway today, with Israel pitching another humanitarian pause in fighting, but putting the ball in Hamas's court. Hamas has said they won't release more hostages until the war ends. In remarks today, Blinken called the suffering in Gaza gut-wrenching, but put the blame for the crisis squarely on Hamas, suggesting that it was both Israel's obligation to minimize civilian deaths and to destroy Hamas, noting that if Hamas surrendered, this would be over. As he spoke, the U.N. Security Council was debating a resolution that would provide aid to Gaza, delayed for the third day at the request of the United States. The U.S. has vetoed previous drafts demanding a humanitarian ceasefire, but NBC News reports that the latest sticking point is the resolution's call for a U.N. mechanism to exclusively monitor the humanitarian relief process, which now rests largely under Israeli control. We asked for a representative from the State Department to join us tonight, as we have done throughout our coverage of this crisis. But yet again tonight, the State Department did not make anyone available. Thankfully, however, joining me now is Josh Paul, a former State Department official. He resigned his position over continued U.S. military assistance to Israel as it bombards Gaza. Um, Josh Paul, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Um, What do you make of the continual um, stall 
of a U.N. resolution that it's not clear Israel would obey. There have been others. Yeah, I think it's a catastrophe. It's actually several catastrophes. Uh, first of all, of course, for the people of Gaza. You know, since America first vetoed the last ceasefire resolution uh, earlier this month, 2,000 Palestinians have been killed uh, by Israel. Uh, that's our taxpayer dollars at work. Um, you know, as you noted, 90% of Gazans currently do not have access on a daily basis to food. Uh, the UN today announced that the World Food Program had provided 2,300 meals yesterday to Gaza. That's nowhere near enough. Yeah. Uh, so it is, of course, a humanitarian catastrophe. It's also a foreign policy catastrophe. President Biden has hitched uh, the global credibility of America mm -hmm. uh, to the moral credibility of Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah. And that's just a disaster for us around the world. I think of Darfur, I think of Rwanda, I think of previous cases in which the United States sort of watched seemingly helplessly as people died by the, 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 the hundreds of thousands and, so, you know, Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo. But in this case, unlike those cases, this feels like this is us doing it. The human misery is being funded by the United States taxpayers, yet it doesn't seem that U.S. public opinion has any impact. Well, that's right. I think U.S. public opinion, it's important to note, has shifted a lot on this issue and I think is in a different place uh, than the American political establishment is on this. Uh, but at the end of the day, this isn't like uh, Somalia or Rwanda or Sudan, uh, because this is our bombs. Uh, this is our weapons that we continue to flow. Uh, you know, there has been a change of tone in the administration. Uh, and we saw that yesterday at the U.N., where uh, Deputy U.S. Ambassador Wood uh, spoke about, you know, the need for Israel to change its language on dehumanizing Palestinians. Yeah. Uh, but how do you talk about that and at the same time hold back or prevent a vote on a ceasefire? Yeah. Um, you know, actions speak louder than words, and our actions have not changed since day one of this conflict. Uh, and the, the rhetoric inside of Israel, we've read some of the things, the Amalek comments by the prime minister um, and other comments uh, about nuking Gaza, about flattening it, about taking it over. You've seen the settlement movement ramp up its aggression, both in the West Bank and in Gaza. I want to put this up. This is an Instagram post by a real estate agency called Harry Zahav. Um, and it said it, it's translated um, from Hebrew, and it says, wake up, a beach house is not a dream. And they talk about they've started working on the reclamation of the area in a place called Gush Katif, which used to be a settlement, removal of waste and expulsion of invaders. We hope that in the forthcoming future, the hostages will return to their homes safely. Our soldiers will come back. And with God's help, we'll start rebuilding throughout the Gush Katif area. Now, NBC News did um, confirm that this is an accurate post. The, the agency, a marketing representative for them, claimed it was a joke and said that it was simply meant to boost the mood. But that is sort of indicative of the kind of thing that you're starting to hear, even from the Israeli government. What do you make of it? I don't know that it is a joke. Uh, you know, I don't know that there is an Israeli policy in place at this point to sort of reinstall settlements in Gaza. Uh, but, you know, I recall my time in uh, Jerusalem and in the West Bank in 2008, 2009, uh, where at that point Israel was in the process of bulldozing, bulldozing the historic Palestinian Maimona Cemetery in Jerusalem uh, to build a museum of tolerance. Uh, it is just, you know, unthinkable. And I think we have to be very concerned, uh, not only about the present moment, but really we're still at the start of this humanitarian crisis. Uh, once the bombs stop dropping, there will still be millions without houses, without food, without infrastructure. Uh, and so I think this is a crisis that is going to continue for a long time. And it is well past time for the United States to change its approach here. Can the United States stop mass expulsion from Gaza? Because people will be hungry. They'll be starving. They may be pushed into Egypt. They may, they may decide that that is their only option. Uh, I think that is something that some in Israel's government would welcome uh, and, and indeed may, may be, you know, intending and thinking about. 
Um, you know, the United States does have a role here. We are the ones who are supplying the arms that Israel is using. Yeah. We are the ones who are providing the diplomatic cover uh, that is enabling Israel to get away time and time again, including, uh, you know, blocking approaches to the International Criminal Court, yeah. blocking accountability. Yeah. Uh, if we were to start changing that, if we were to allow uh, movements for accountability to shift, if yeah. we were to hold out the real possibility of, of prison yeah. uh, for those who commit war crimes, uh, perhaps things would change. Uh, one could hope. Uh, Josh Paul, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Uh, and coming up, I've got a big announcement in store when we come back. Okay, you do not want to miss tomorrow night's show. You know, we love to pick who won the week. Well, tomorrow, a panel of friends of the show and throwing me as well. We'll be announcing our choices for who won the year. And yes, somebody did win the year. Plus, we will have a very special guest, really big, perhaps the biggest guest you could get, most popular guy on the planet. And that is tonight's readout. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. 